0: Basic text
1: analysis, uh, and now we want to
0: start kind of piecing the, the position together. Uh, there's still more text analysis to come, but uh, we can start building the position a bit uh, to see how the pieces go. You're already prepared for this one, uh, the functional focus, because I've been talking about it from the very first picture of the Egyptian uh, world picture on it we could see that they were more interested in functions, in order, in the roles of the gods. They were much more interested in that than they were in material shape of the cosmos. We've talked about the idea that on day one, there was not a material result of God's creative work, rather that it had to do with order, time. We've also seen that in uh, the beginning point, was not lacking material, but lacking order and function. And we saw that the verb, barat, often pertains to function, uh, as establishing functions as a creative activity. We've seen that existence can be understood in functional terms rather than in material terms. There's a real interesting comic in Dover a few years ago I tried to get permission to use it, but he was asking too much money. So now I just have to describe it. So Dilbert goes in talking to his boss. And his boss says, every project you worked on this year got canceled. It's as if if you don't exist. He says, well, I exist. He says, I occupy space. See what? Function, materiality. I occupy space. I exist. The boss says, "A dead person occupies space." <laughs> and Dilbert's response is, "Yeah, but a dead person exists." <laughs> really, interesting, isn't it? The difference between material existence and functional existence. The last, uh, in the last frame, Dilbert says to Wally, "He says." I won the argument, but it was really a hollow victory. (laughs) (laughs) So this idea about what constitutes existence and what creation story are we interested in telling. So I want to talk some about this functional focus. In the ancient functional focus, existence is defined by having a function. And by that I mean a role and a purpose in an ordered system. Now that's different from how we think about existence, except dead bodies, but it's different how we think about existence, because we tend to think in material terms. And when we think about an origin story, we immediately would think about a material origins story. That has a lot to do with our world and our culture particularly the post-Enlightenment nature of our world and culture. In this way of thinking, when the biblical text keeps talking about something being good, what's it referring to? That's actually quite an important theological discussion. Some people would say, well, since the Bible said it was good, then there couldn't have been this or that or the other thing. It must have been perfect. It must have been ideal. It must have been morally upright. It must have been flawless in design. It must have been all these things. Well, are we sure we can bring all of that in and this word good? What does the word pertain to? Well, it turns out the Hebrew word is a very general term, just like good is in English. It could mean any number of different things. So how do we know which one the author intended? After all, remember, that is our question. Which one did the author intend? Now, again, to find out what it means when it says something is good, it would be very helpful if we could compare that in the context to something that was not good. Only there was something that the author told us was not good. Ah. It was not good for and me alone. OK? So in what sense is that not good? I mean, besides the first hundred that comes to mind. OK? okay. In what sense <laughs> is that not good? It doesn't have to do with moral perfection. It doesn't have to do with flawless design. By now, you can guess the word that I use. Okay. It has to do with functions. That is, this is not yet a fully functional system. Sort of like the Death Star in Star Wars. Anyway. So when God's saying it is good, he's not saying it is perfect. He is saying it's ready to function. So as I flew here today from Harrisburg to Dulles to Indianapolis, as I flew here today, Every time I got on the plane, I very much hoped that the pilot was going through the pre flight checklist. Engines, good. Flaps, good. Food, marginal. (laughs) I can't have it all. Okay, but he was saying these things are ready to function. Okay? And I'm glad he was going through that check because that means the plane's ready to fly. Ready to serve the audience, which included me, and I wanted to fly well. So here, God's going through his checklist. Is everything ready to work? We might ask, ready to work for what? For whom? Ah, that's what we're getting to. Okay? Because functional asks the question functional for whom? For what? We have to answer that question before we're we're done. So, good functioning properly in an ordered system. I propose then that Genesis 1 provides an account of functional origins, not an account of material origins. Now, here I'm not asking the question tell me all of the creative acts that God ever did. That would be a long list. Because God has done everything that was ever done. God is responsible for all of it. Okay? And God did indeed, I, I believe this, don't, you know, don't miss this, I believe God did create the material cosmos. But see, I'm not asking the question to tell you all the things God did. I'm asking the question, what part of the story does this account tell? This is a literary question. What story is this one trying to tell? <clears throat> say you were going to a play, and you got tied up in traffic. Well, I got tied up in traffic several so times today. But say you got tied up in traffic, and so you end up late, and you're real frustrated because it's already begun. The play has started, and the theater's all dark, and it's all crowded. And of course, your seat is right down in front in the middle. So you very sheepishly walk down there, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, people getting up, you know, excuse me, excuse me. You sit down. And, you know, people all around you. And here the whole thing has started, and you don't know what's going on. So, since you've already embarrassed yourself, you nudge the person next to you, and you say, How did it begin? You would be shocked, surprised, if the person said... Well, the theater was first built in 1932. Um, it used a particular kind of construction. It was unique in its time as it designed the stage and the seats around it. The set was built by the Jones and Williams Company, and they have a particular. You'd say, no, 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 no. Oh, well, the costumes were designed. No! That's not what I'm interested in. What's happened so far? Oh, a different origins question about how did it begin. What story is the text telling? The story that it's telling is not necessarily going to be the one that's of most interest to you. Maybe you were into theater design. design. Okay? It's not the one most interesting to you. They're going to tell the story that they consider most significant and since the human author is operating through God's purposes that God considered most significant. It's most significant in the ancient world. It's most significant in terms of theology. And I would even argue that it's really most significant to us, even if we have interests in the material world and the question of material fortunes. Genesis 1, I propose, is about God bringing order, functionality, into the midst of non-order. I'm not talking about a chaos kind of thing here. It's not that it was chaos, evil, wrong, and that God brought order. It just wasn't ordered yet. Like when you move into a new house and you've got all the boxes around. Okay, let me use a different example. It's similar and different. My kids have all moved out. Their stuff is not.
2: <laughs>
0: so we have an unfinished basement, and the basement is just filled, jam-packed with all of their stuff that they can't fit into their little apartments. So we have a lot of non-order down there in the basement. It's not evil, it's not disorder, but it's non-order. Now, we have a ping-pong table and a foosball table down in the basement we have students over, and we like to play ping-pong and foosball. So we've created a little space of order around the ping-pong table and the foosball table, okay? so that we can have students down there, and we can have those areas functioning as they're designed to. And the boxes are all at the sides, not ordered at the fringes of the ordered cosmos of our basement. A raccoon got into our basement and started tearing up all the boxes. Better hope he doesn't get to my middle son's books because he would definitely do nasty things to that raccoon. Right but anyway, so say that that would be disorder. Now that this is evil. They're ripping up things. Okay? So you've got non-order and order and disorder. Three different states. So, in Genesis 1, God is bringing order into the midst of non order. God is not getting rid of all non order. Remember, in Genesis 1 2, the sea and darkness were elements of non order. Mm -hmm. Creation brings order, but it doesn't necessarily get rid of all non order. The sea is still there, the darkness is still there. There's an outside of the garden as well as an inside of the garden when we get to chapter 2 there is still non order, but there is order in the midst of it. So God is about bringing order, and that is a creative activity. We could even argue that it is the most important creative activity. Given what I've suggested, it's fruitless to ask what things God created on any given day. Things is a material question. If the text is not giving a material account, it's not answering the material questions. The text is not concerned about the existence of matter. To the text and to the Israelites, that issue is immaterial. <laughs> I can't help it. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> What we find in the Bible is that naming and separating then are acts of creation. Now, you've always seen naming and separating in the biblical text, but you didn't think of them as creative activities. But it's naming and separating that have to do with functions and order and role. And indeed, we find throughout the ancient Near Eastern texts naming and separating are key activities of creation as the gods create. Now, please note, I hope you've seen this, as I'm using ancient Near Eastern materials, I'm not taking information from those and imposing their ideas on the biblical text. I'm trying to show you that it exists in the biblical text all by itself. But then it's important to see that in that issue, the Israelites are just like the people around them. Okay? That's, That's my point. I'm not bringing it in from outside. I'm rather showing that the similarity exists. If we see this in the Bible, oh, we're not surprised that they thought this way in the ancient Near East as well. Now, the illustration I'd like to use is that it's not about building a house, but about making a house a home. When we talk about the material cosmos, we can talk about that as the house our cosmic house, the universe, the physical, material universe. That's the house. But there's more to it, because it's the idea that we are living here, it's our home. Okay, we can talk about what's a house and what's a home. Uh, when you go looking for a new place, and the realtor lets you in and starts showing you around, One member of the family, perhaps often the father, is going to examine the house. What kind of uh, plumbing does it have? What kind of electricity? What's the siding? What kind of shape is the roof in? How's the foundations? Are there cracks in the basement walls? He's going to be looking at the house. More often than not, the mom will be looking at the home. That is, what kind of traffic pattern are we going to have here? Which room is going to work which ways? this one was a dining room. Let's make it a den. Uh, maybe we can make this one a spare bedroom. Okay? How is this going to function as our home? The kids, of course, are saying, "Which one's mine? I want this one." Okay? That's very personalized for them. And so you can look at it as a house, or you can look at it as a home, and they're different things. When I have students over, they often ask me about our place. They don't want me to tell them about the plumbing. They really don't care about the site. They want to know about it becoming our home and are using it as our home. And so there are two different stories that can be told, the house story or the home story. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Suburban kid, you know, housing developments. And uh, about 15 minutes from our house, uh, there was a housing development. um, And the houses were over several streets, kind of all all built around how those are. But right in the middle was a barn, or about two, three acres of land. And of course, you can figure out exactly what happened. The farmer had sold off his lands to a developer. And the developer built houses, but the farmer didn't sell them the barn. And so there it sat in the middle of this housing development. Well, time came, and a church about a half hour from us decided they wanted to plant a church in our area. And so they looked around for a building that they could use. And they decided that they were going to use this barn. And they called it Central Square Chapel. And a church was founded there. And it's the church I grew up in. Centers chapel. Yes, I went to church in a barn. <laughs> but it wasn't down in the rural area. This is right in the middle of the suburbs. And they did very little to fix it up. They laid a little linoleum down on, on the floor. So we had a sanctuary. Sanctuary. Uh, you know, my Sunday school rooms were in the stalls downstairs. Half walls, you know, the straw on the floor those are my Sunday school rooms. Now, if somebody asked me to tell them the origin story of Center Square Chapel, I wouldn't talk to them about the barn. They don't care about the barn. It's intriguing, interesting, they're not the barn, but that's all they need to know. They don't need to know what kind of animals used to be there, what kind of wood was used, uh, you know, where they stored the hay. Uh, they, they wouldn't need to know that. They wouldn't want to know that. The story of the church is the story of the home that it became. That house, a barn, became a home for our church. And the origin story has to do with the church. About uh, five years ago, uh, the, uh, just before the economy crashed and uh, the housing market along with it, uh, a builder bought a piece of property near us and, and constructed a house expecting that he was going to sell it. And completed the house. And then it was just ready to put it on the market and everything went down the tubes. And that house just sat empty. As a house, it existed. It functioned. The electricity was hooked up, and it would work. The plumbing was hooked up, it would work. The roof kept the rain out. The foundation held the walls straight. It, it functioned as a house. But it did not exist as a home, because nobody lived there. Nobody there to turn the switches. Nobody there to turn the faucets. And even though it existed and functioned as a house, it did not exist or function as a home. It would only take on existence as a home when someone moved in. And they walked from room to room, flipped lights, and said, it's good. Turned on faucets and said, it's good. the function of a home and the origins of a home is different than that of a house. So my question, is Genesis 1 the house story or the home story? In a house story, we have what scientists are interested in. Science is very interested in this cosmic house of uh, figuring out how it works, all the ways that it does what it does, of its history and its makeup. And I'm glad they are. I'm delighted. It has a lot of benefits. And it's, it's intriguing stuff. Science is interested in the house story. Science can't say much about the home story, maybe the anthropic small here and there, but not, not much. You can't really explore that much. It's a house story. That's the interest of science. And when we think that the Bible offers a house story, we might think that it then offers a competing house story, a contrasting house story, and that you have to either accept science's house story or the Bible's house story. But you can see all of that depends on that decision that the Bible actually is offering a house story. If it's not, then it can be offering a competing house story. Now if you've noticed in the house story. Okay, think about how it works in the house story. You know, I'm just one person in the teeny mass of humanity. Why it makes me feel a little bit small. The humanity is only. Occupying a certain portion of, of this whole globe. Think of the oceans and all of that. Wow, that makes me feel even smaller. And this globe is, is just one part of this huge solar system. Wow. That solar system is in the corner of a vast galaxy. And that galaxy is only one of millions of galaxies through this. Universe I feel like nothing. I feel so insignificant. Maybe I should go read Ecclesiastes. Oh wait. (laughs) (laughs) But see that's how it is. In the house story, we're insignificant. Does the Bible want to reinforce our insignificance? I think not. In the home story, we are honored guests. This is a place prepared for us. When Jesus tells the disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, it wasn't the first time that's happened. Because as Jesus was involved in the creation of the world, he was preparing a place for us. And in new creation, he is preparing a place for us. Mm -hmm. There is rich theology here. We're honored guests. God has made this place function for us. Now, that part's different from how we think of an origin story, but it's also different from how they would have thought in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they believed that the gods made the universe, the cosmos, for themselves, to serve their own purposes, their own needs, their own use. And then as time went on, they thought, know, we're really tired of doing all the work of upkeep that it takes here on this house. We really need somebody to do that for us. Boy, wouldn't some slave labor be nice? Ah, let's create people. And they do. And people are created in that larger ancient world context to be slaves. Now, there's where the Bible has a different idea. And here we get the idea that, no, God did not create this house, this cosmos, for itself. He has no needs. He didn't need a place. But he created it for us not to function for himself, to function for us. In that sense, he has been preparing this place for us, and we are his honored guests. That's the difference between a house story and a home story. And the home story is arguably the more important story. Again, I don't want to say the house story has no importance. Of course it does. But if you're only going to tell one of those stories, the home story is theologically more significant. And it's the one that the Israelites would certainly be more interested in. Now, we've already talked about day one. Day one God created time. That has to do with a function. It has to do with order. It's not an object. Nothing material going on. So we've set that pace. How about day two? In day two, it talks about the rakia, that's the Hebrew word. In NIV, it's translated expanse. In the old King James, it was translated firmament. Okay, Some people think it's a solid sky, and that's the position I presented in Lost World. I've changed my mind since then. And the blue book, Genesis waters ancient cosmology, has a different suggestion. In one sense, it doesn't matter very much um, whether it's the solid sky that holds back the waters above whether it's the air pocket that creates that space it doesn't make a big deal of difference. It's still pulling out the waters, separating the waters from the waters. Okay, whether it's something solid or the. You know, what's more important than the balloon? The red stuff or the air fills the balloon? They're, they're both part of the, the issue. Okay, so it really doesn't matter that much. But the fact is, Uh, God's not trying to describe the material realities here. He's using, rather, their understanding to convey another function. And that function is weather. Because the waters above is all about how the weather is going to work. Now, again, it doesn't matter what your material ideas are about how the weather works whether it's high-pressure systems, low-pressure systems, El Nino, or whatever we would do, or whether it's solid sky and waters above. By the way, I think there is another Hebrew word for solid sky. That's what made me change my position. <coughs> anyway, so on day two, God creates weather. On day three, it says, let the dry land emerge. That's interesting. It doesn't say God made it. He says, let it emerge. And he says, let the plants sprout. doesn't say God made anything. And if this is a material account, you expect him to be making materials. By the way, the only thing that it says he made in verse 2 was this rock here. Well, if that's a solid sky, then it's something that we don't believe existed. If it's the space, that's not material. Okay, so again, if we are thinking that it's a material account, we should expect to be seeing materials. And we don't. Time, weather, plants sprout. They drop seed, and they sprout again, and again, and again. What an interesting system. We're glad it works that way. God set it up to work that way, because that's how we get food. Time rather than food. Do you notice that this is a creation story for everyone? That it doesn't matter what country, what time, what place, what culture, what language, these are the three biggies. These are the three functions that determine human existence and survival. The most important things in our lives are these three things. This is the origin story for everybody. Material understandings come and go, change and develop. These functions remain. When you talk to somebody at the bus stop or the grocery store, odds are you're going to be talking about these three things in one form or another. (laughs) Not so much quarks and nebulae. Wouldn't it make sense that God's going to communicate origins? He's going to communicate concepts that are meaningful to everyone. These three kind of cover it pretty well. Now, the Bible knows these are the categories. Look at this, Genesis 8, 22. This is after the flood, and God is restoring order, right? He has brought non-order back. That's the flood. To deal with disorder, that's the violence. Now He is bringing order again. You're following the pattern. And what does he say? As long as the earth endures. Seed, time, and harvest. Food. Cold, heat, summer, winter. Weather. Day and night. Time. Clearly functional. The Bible knows these categories. It knows this is the focus. about the ancient world? I'll just give you one text as an example. This is a Sumerian text, and world order. And it's a creation text. But you can see, even by the title we give it, world order, it's about bringing order and organization. But it is a creation text. When we take a look at the text, I won't read through the whole thing, but I want to point out a couple of things. You can kind of read over it as as you would like to. Right? Get down to about the fourth line there. It talks about. Regularizing the days. That deals with time. And these assembled people, you open your mouth, and you can multiply, play to be established. Rain of abundance, rains from heaven. Talks about weather. When I approach earth, there's a high cart flow, when I approach the green meadows. Food. Same three issues. And I can go to text after text after tax. These are the issues. It's interesting that he then gets to I built my Abzu, a shrine. And here it gets to the issue of temple. Because the temple is where the ordered cosmos has its command center. We'll get back to that probably tomorrow. Okay, so again, it's not that I take this information and import it into the Bible. I've already seen it in the Bible. But we see it in the Bible, we say, wow, that's not like how we think. Is it like the rest of the ancient world thinks? sure is. So it's very natural for the Israelites to think that way. There's nothing theologically wrong with thinking in these categories, time, weather, and food. That's theologically powerful. Okay? So it's not like they're borrowing mythology. That's not what's happening here. It's just they, they live in that world. They think in those terms. Here's another one. Okay, I need one more. This is uh, the, the last one, Ancient World Order, is from the very beginning of the literary history. The Sumerians, back uh, in the third millennium BC. This is at the very end of the Old Testament period. Papyrus and Singer is already in the Hellenistic period, and it's reflecting these Egyptian ideas. But well, you can look as you read through it. He created light and darkness, he created day, month, and year. See time there? He okay, created summer and winter, see weather. He created food before those who are alive, the wonder of the field. See the creation connected to these functions. He created the constellation, not the stars, the constellations. That's order and organization. created sweet water, breath in the egg, though there's no access to it, birth in the womb, sinews and bones, sleep. To weariness created remedies, created the dream. Do you see how they're focusing on functions? This is Hellenistic already. And they're still thinking in terms of these functions. That brackets the whole Old Testament period. Again, created food, created succession of generations. Okay? See how the ancient Near Eastern thinking works as they think about creation and origins of stories. So, days 1, 2, and 3, we've talked about them now. This is where functions are proclaimed, OK? That's what's happening. God said, let there be this period of light. And so we talk about this function, he names them day and night. It's good. That's ready to work. In the home, but this is not a house story. That stuff already would have been part of the house, but now it's ready to work in the home. And that family finally buys that house that's sat empty. They want to know if everything's ready to work for them. They assume that it's built into the house, but now they need to know, does it work for them? Does it function for their home? We have the basis for time. Light is not an object, so the Israelites aren't thinking about objects being made. The basis for weather and space for existence. Space is not an object, so they're not thinking about objects being made. The basis for food provision. Dry land emerges. Plants sprout. It doesn't say God makes those things. Again, certainly He did. He did make them, and the Israelites would have acknowledged that He made them. That's just not the part of the story they're telling. They want to talk about he made them work for the home. Now, what about days four, five, and six? These are functions being proclaimed. Time, weather, and food are functions. When we get to the days four through six, days four through six functionaries are being installed. Functionaries are being installed. Sun, moon, and stars are not functions, right? Sun, moon, and stars are functionaries. And the text tells you what they're functionaries for. The text says they are for signs and seasons. And by the way, that word for seasons uh, is not summer and winter. It's a word for celebrations, festivals. Signs, celebrations, days, and years. These are all functions for people doesn't say he made the sun to be a burning ball of gas. It says rather how it's functioning for people. So these functionaries are installed to serve these functions for people. The Israelites were not considered these objects. The Israelites believed as far as we can tell the way most people in the ancient world believed that the stars were engraved on the underside of the heavens, the solid sky. Remember the picture of the Egyptian goddess with the stars all over her body? They believed they were engraved because they moved in concert. That's what it looked like to them. Think about the moon. When you think about the moon, you think about a rock in orbit 375,000 miles away, reflecting the light of the sun, has variations in color because of craters caused by asteroids, it's revolving, it's rotating, and that causes the phases of the moon. All of those things come to your mind. You don't even have to think about them. They're subconscious is what you believe. We all believe this about the moon. Did the Israelites know any single one of those pieces of information. Out of world so they weren't thinking of the moon as a rock as reflecting as in orbit they weren't thinking in those terms so what did they think what was their material picture they didn't have one and they didn't care. What do they believe about the moon? Exactly what they call it. It's a light. They don't know there's an object. It's a light. The sun is a light. So when they think about the sun and moon and stars, they are not thinking of God manufacturing material and objects. They're thinking about how those lights function for them in their home? A child will not understand electricity. That's the house question. But they understand you flip the switch and the room gets light. That's the function. Isn't it strange how our preconceived ideas impact our reading of the text? And all of these claims that we think the text is making are based on these presuppositions that are modern, that are not inherent in the ancient world or in the biblical author or audience's understanding. Day five, let fish and birds team and let them fill the world. This this is the furniture, this is the interior design. They're supposed to fill our world. Now, the Israelites had questions about what more specific functions did they serve. That's what God talks to Job about in chapter 38 about some of those unusual animals. Animals likewise to fill the world, and people in his image, a function. Subdue and rule, that's a function, Those are order-bringing activities, God has created people in his image to function as his vice-regents, as his stewards, to help expand order. Remember, God had only begun to have order. So, I could talk about having my children in my image, and they're supposed to expand order in my basement. (laughs) by moving their stuff out of there. Uh, Maybe not quite the same way, but expanding order. That's the role people have. So days one through three, we have time, weather, and food. Days four through six are not the functions. They are functionaries, which have functions. Okay, And the functionaries, lights, air and sea creatures, Land creatures. By the way, if you ever worried about how could it be that there is light on day one and not sun and stars until day four, you don't have a problem anymore. Because all of that assumed it was a material account and assumed that it was a material sequence. I'm suggesting that it's not at all a material sequence or a material account. Now let's talk a bit about the image of God just a little more carefully. I mentioned the idea of function. I'm going to give a couple other terms as well that will help us. It's not uncommon for people to think of the image of God... Uh, Well, let me start somewhere else. They believe that the image of God distinguishes us from animals, and indeed it does. But they therefore conclude that anything that distinguishes us from animals must be the image of God. That doesn't always hold. I think that's how people have done it. So they say, okay, what differentiates human beings from animals? Well, um, we have a self consciousness, so that must be the image of God. We have a God awareness, that must be the image of God. See, they're just defining the image of God, meaning those things that make us different from animals. Uh, I don't think that is the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible talks about the image of God and helps us understand it. And one of them is that it doesn't have to do with our capacity, our mental capacity, but rather has to do with the functions that we have. So it refers to the corporate function that all humanity serves as God's vice regents. That doesn't matter whether you think that someone is high-functioning or low-functioning. And mentally, or physically, or emotionally, doesn't make any difference. We, we as a race, are God's vice regents. All people have this function, regardless of how well they, they function, mentally or physically. Capacities that differentiate humans from animals allows us to carry out these functions. Our God-awareness, our self-awareness, allow us to carry them out. But they are not themselves the image of God. Secondly, we can talk about identity. That is, the image of God gives us all an identity. It is who we are. So, in that sense, it's not a product of evolutionary neuroscience. It's an act of special creation. We are in, in relationship with God. We can be in Christ. And so that's an act of special creation. Thirdly, we are a substitute, a representative We stand in as God's substitutes, endowed with his essence. Uh, This material develops from how images were used by kings in the ancient world. They used images to kind of carry their essence, to represent their presence. So we represent God's presence uh, by being here uh, in this place he has prepared for us. His essence makes us spiritual beings and constitutes discontinuity from all other species and creatures. So, we, the image of God gives us a function, gives us an identity, and makes us his representatives. It also means that we have a capacity to be like him, and he has given us that ability. So that's a little bit about the image of God. It distinguishes us, certainly. I'm <coughs> going to start there tomorrow morning. I want us to have plenty of time for questions on the part we've talked about so far. Um, tomorrow we're going to talk some more about whose home it is and how this home works in the home story. <clears throat> but we have plenty of time for some questions. Yes, sir. So it sounds know, like function played a
3: pretty important role in ancient theories. So if something lacks function in ancient theories, it would
4: have also lack significance
3: in seen as worthless. I mean, how, how does the issue work worthless, like, something being worth
0: something, or something into Well, they understood that, did everybody hear the question again? Okay. No? Not quite? No? Yes? No? no. Okay, uh, so the question was, if they see existence as having to do with function, then uh, you not only have a sense of worthlessness for something that doesn't have a function, and how did, how did that all work? And yes, indeed, they did feel like there were things that were non-functioning for them, and therefore, what they would call non-existent. Now, again, what happens is, sometimes they would discover a function for something that they hadn't known before, and then that would give it this existence quality. They did consider some things to be without function for them, but that wasn't a... I don't want to say it wasn't a negative assessment. It was negative in certain ways, but it wasn't a judgmental assessment, uh, that it was not functioning for human beings. Again, remember they're thinking in corporate terms, not in individual terms. Uh, But even the, the Egyptians would talk about their enemies, and when they fought their enemies, they would drive them into the non-existent, in effect to make their enemies non-existent, not meaning that they killed them all, but that they are out of their functioning world. So, in that sense, it wasn't a matter of worth; it was a matter of involvement. Yes, you seem to say that. I understood it when God created when He created time. Right, time for the home. Time for the home. Yeah, make any difference between house and home. Okay, was there time before? Yes. Again, just like there's electricity in a house before people move in. Okay. But it doesn't work for the home or work for people until there are people there. Was there a difference between time before the home and the home? Not necessarily. Again, just like there's no difference between electricity when people are there or when they're not. But again, the existence is conditioned on it functioning for people. You know, we get back to the old question: If a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Was there time? How is the relationship to God in this time? Okay. Uh, Time and God is another big issue, uh, as I understand it, and Tim, you can correct me. Philosophers talk, I get philosophers to tell me this, Uh, philosophers talk differently about time relevant to God and time relevant to people, and that there are different categories. That is, if you talk about time as a sequence of events, God does act, and therefore there are events, if they're in sequence, then there must be time of some sort, but that's different from time for us. But Tim would have to answer those questions. That's it. I've already passed my limit on that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> would somebody in the ancient
1: Near East uh, reading this have concluded, or could they have concluded that the world was eternal uh, as a result of Genesis 1?
0: Well, theoretically they could have, but the fact is they already have their minds made up about that. That is, they don't tend to think of matter as eternal. Uh, Now, some people will argue that in some of the ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, they may be thinking of matter as eternal, but I still think those scholars are looking for the wrong things. Uh, That is, they're thinking that the ancients are talking about material origins, but I don't think that's true. Um, For. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, In the ancient Near East, they feasibly. I mean, the other cultures could feasibly have thought of material as eternal because they didn't view their gods as non-contingent. They saw their gods as contingent with the, with the cosmos, and therefore, that could have been the case. But of course, they thought their gods all were created as well. So in the ancient world, they, they do not tend to think of material as eternal. And again, it's just our question we're dealing with. So they
1: didn't have to say, "Oh, it's not."
0: They, of course, it's not. Big. Yes, Tim? I just have questions. Oh, you're me. not going to spend uh, somehow for us, oh, are okay. you? So, uh, so suppose you're right about
3: um, what's going on here and how the uh, original audience would have mm-hmm. heard and interpreted this. Do you know? I know this is pushing outside your your specialty. I'm sure you've, you've thought about this, <laughs> read about this. So where in the history of God's people, in the history of the Israelites and then eventually in the church, would this understanding have become less obvious,
0: and become lost specifically? What about the New Testament? Okay. Um, so what about the New Testament? When do things change and start to take on materiality? Uh, well, you know. For somebody to really be uh, material in the material world, you have to go to Madonna. No, way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Again, you're right, I'm not a historian or a history of thought kind of person, but I've, I've studied it a little bit, I've asked people to talk, I've observed the, the literature, and this is my best, best shot at it. Um, certainly in, uh, in the Greco, the, the Greek world, the Hellenistic work, work um, the materiality became more of an interest, became something that they began thinking about more deeply, Certainly uh, with Plato and Aristotle, they're thinking in some of those terms. But of course, even with Plato, if I understand correctly, he still says the true reality is the non-material. And then materiality is a, I don't know how he would define it. But, but so but they're thinking about material. They're setting up those categories. And so we see that happening there. When Hellenism, Hellenism just blows over the, the entire world, uh, Alexander the Great and the, the uh, centuries after, um, this whole view takes over. And the ancient world is gone. It is no more at that point. And they're not thinking like ancient Near East people anymore. They've forgotten what that is. Calvinism really does take over everything, And at that point, uh, Plato and Aristotle and others become the, the basis for how they thought about the world around them and their philosophical thinking. Uh, That's evident in the New Testament as they are dealing with sometimes Platonic or Aristotelian concepts uh, and working with those. We see it in the the Pharisees, we see it in the rabbis, we see it in the church fathers. Uh, That's the mode of thinking. The ancient world has been lost at that point. Yet, despite that, we also do still see vestiges of this functional way of thinking. So Colossians is, is not content to just talk about material world. It talks about Christ as the creator of all things visible and invisible. Uh, the author of Hebrews talks about the, how God created the, it's often translated, I don't know what translation you have, but the, the universe. And we tend to think, oh, that's the material, wait a minute, it's not the Greek word cosmos, it's the Greek word aeons. Okay, and it's kind of the flow of events and history and God's plan that he created. So uh, there's still both kinds of thinking. We see Christ, of course, the Logos. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And that includes all categories, again, material and functional. So in New Testament, we, we kind of see both in operation. Um, so that's a change that's taking place gradually. Of course, it doesn't become actually cemented until you get to the Enlightenment, as far as I can see. Um, and you get to the Enlightenment, and you begin to say that uh, material is all there is. Um, and of course, that becomes the basis for what people do with Darwinism and um, all of those. So, But I think that there are people now doing more work on the history of thought. They're trying to develop those ideas and, and kind of flesh out uh, all, of our, you know, all of that. So that's my best shot at it. Yes, sir? Based on what you're saying,
1: if I can put the word you're out, uh, you're saying that man was created, was uh, placed into some type of form from a total man form as a result of what God did in Genesis 1. Okay. okay. Which would indicate that there were an evolutionary process if I use that term.
0: No, I haven't said any of those I haven't, <laughs> no. haven't even talked about if people. You,
1: said, you have said that there's a home and that versus a house,
0: right? The cosmos says a house and home, yes. Okay. A home for people. If you make change. a home,
1: you have to have a house for okay. your existing. So if Genesis, sure. if Genesis 1 is based on a home, then there had to be a house prior to Genesis
0: 1. Sure, but I didn't say who was in that, who was making it their home.
1: Well, I'm not saying
0: you did. Okay. Okay, I'm saying that the
1: existence of that home was prior to the home, correct? The existence of the house was prior to the home, which we just kind of discussed. Mm-hmm. So that would mean that there's some type of proto-organism prior to that home being revealed in function form.
0: That's one of the conclusions that one could draw, and it's one of the scenarios one could paint. Again, we're going to talk about that a lot tomorrow. So.
1: Let me <laughs> tell you this. Uh, where's the flood and the strata come into your thing? Is
0: that home or house? Well, the, the flood would have come after this world became a home for people. And therefore, again, it brings a returning non-order, wiping out most of what had been ordered uh, because of disorder. Um, so, that certainly would work after the home is in place for people in God's image. So, where's the strata
1: from is that- Area or is that home area? Perfect.
0: Well, the account has to be part of the home story because people were already living in that home. I know the account does because that's, that's a chronological point after Genesis
1: 1. Mm-hmm. But relative to your thinking, was this in the Genesis? where the strata created as a result of what happened in Genesis or was it created prior to the?
0: Well, if by strata you're talking about the geological strata. Yeah. Yeah, well, at that point, I would have to know how the flood related to those strata, and that's a science question, and I don't know.
1: But it impinges on what you're saying, because if the strata indicates the uh, presupposition that evolution occurred, then it impacts what
0: you're saying. But see, you're asking all the science questions, and the Bible's not addressing the science questions, and I'm not addressing the science questions, and neither of us are capable of doing so, either but the Bible myself. I, ex- I don't think you can exclude science from Scripture.
1: I think science, science can point to the veracity of Scripture, but it can also point to the
0: inaccuracies of those who do not believe in Scripture. Okay, science certainly can tell us about God's world, and we expect the truths of God's world. To converge with the truths of God's word, to me that's not quite the same as science telling us about Scripture. Um, again, we have to be careful to keep keep things in their place in terms of what the Bible is doing and what it's not doing. So, again, we have to choose our words very carefully about how we consider that to be the case. Uh, yes, there's a difference in the strength of the argument
3: if it is the case that there are ancient Near East texts, that there are in existence some ancient Near East texts that promote this functional account. That's a different statement than there aren't any Near East, ancient Near Eastern texts that actually look at material origins.
0: That yeah. is That's a different, different account.
3: And again, uh, So I'm, I'm just wondering if, Cherry picking is I, I don't—I don't mean it to be that mm-hmm. accusatory. But if there are right, five texts that show the material accounts, and we can line up or with the functional accounts, and we can line up with those, and say it isn't out of the question that this is the way they were looking at it, because others did. Uh, uh, are you, thinking you have such texts? No. I'm, oh. What I'm asking you is if, if you know if there are any—if no. there are any other texts that show material tradition accounts as well. Nope. So you're not aware of any
0: out there. They're all functional. Yep. Great. Yep. Yep. Again, it's one of the things that uh, you know from from the beginning of the comparative studies process, where we had texts and we were comparing them. To of, one of the first things that people said, and they have consistently said, is that um, in the ancient Near East, the creation stories are all about functions and organization, not about making things. Now, even some of those people who Uh, Thought that the Bible was about making things was material. Count said, "See, here's a big difference between the Bible and the ancient Near East. Ancient Near East, they're never making things. In the Bible, God's making things." And I've gotten to the point where I say, "Um, "No, He's not. You know, that's not what the story is." So, but yes, that's yes. Yeah. Does your thesis help us understand what the purpose of writing Genesis one is, or is that? oh I think it very much it, it helps us see the purpose of writing Genesis 1 in ways that we did not understand before uh, that is the the idea that God has set up this functioning world uh, I haven't gotten to the key point yet that talks about uh, God's presence and the fact that um, it's spoiler, spoiler, spoiler that it's his home I mean that's the key element here that we're missing because we think about the house instead of the home. We'll get to that tomorrow. It does make a big deal of difference. Yes, sir? Um,
3: yeah. Does understanding this, would it lead you to translate Genesis any differently? Could forgive people for reading Genesis as yeah. we so often do now as a sort of literal, account of origin, like common
4: origin? Well, in one sense, it
0: wouldn't. It? I would still translate the word bara as create. But again, we've seen that even in English, that gives you a wide range of possibilities. The fact that I think that that creating has to do with the functional level instead of the material level, that would be hard to represent in a translation, because it still is creating. So in that sense, I don't know that I'd make a change, but I would have to explain it differently. I understand that when a modern reader reads the word create, certain ideas come to their minds, and they're not the ideas that I think ought to come to their minds. But I don't know that I would change that. What I might be more inclined to change is the word made, because even more than the word create, the word made, which occurs throughout Genesis 1, Mm -hmm. sounds to us like a material manufacturing process. But I don't know what I'd change it to. Yes? Is that word made in the original Albrecht also bara? No. No. Uh, That word's asah. Uh, Let's say, you know, I mentioned that bara is used only 50 times. Asa is over 2,600 times, one of the most common verbs in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, So that becomes a much more complicated word study. Of course, I've done it. Uh, I've got that information in this book. And... It's on pages 133 to 136 <laughs> where I have that, that discussion. it's a very complex discussion. For the fact is, we have, again, we do the same thing. We look at what kinds of direct objects we use. You know, we can use the verb asa to say, God made the constellations. OK, what's, what's, that, what's that talking about? And there are plenty of other examples like that. Again, I go through them and talk about those those possibilities. Um, when we learn Hebrew vocabulary, again, it's one of the first verbs that a beginning student learns. Mm-hmm. And we learned that asa means to make or to do. So, wow, that's really a big difference: make and do. I and mean, we wouldn't do that in English. Um, but here we have it in Hebrew. And of course, that's just the beginning. There are actually dozens of different ways that Asa is translated into English, depending on the context. Uh, what I've tried to suggest is that it's really okay, here's, here's an example Exodus 20. Everybody gets to Exodus 20 sooner or later when they're talking about Genesis 1, because there, in the treatment of the fourth, I'm sorry, the seventh day, fourth commandment, right, they, it says, um, on these six days you shall do all your work. On the seventh day you shall not do any work. Because on the seventh day God made the heavens and the earth. Or actually it says in six days God made the heavens and the earth on the seventh day. The rest, sorry. Okay? Six days God made. And that makes it sound like a material process in these six days. That uses the verb Asa. Now, so where do we go from there? Okay, I go right back to what I just translated. In six days you shall do. That's asah all your work. On the seventh day you should not do. That's asah any work. Do work. Don't do work. Because in six days God did His work. He did the heavens and the earth. Now that's horrible English. You wouldn't say, in six days God did the heavens and the earth. What do you mean he did them? What does it mean to do them? Now that's the good question. Now, Exodus 20 is quoting Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. Let's take a look at it here in a minute. God had finished the work. That's the same word that Exodus 20 uses. The work that he had been doing. That's asah. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. That's the same word as in Exodus 20. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that's the same as in Exodus 20 of creating Now we know what work God was doing. He was barah from the work of creating that he had done. That's asah. What does it mean for God to do his work, to do the heavens and the earth? It means to barah them, to give them functions. So, we've got got a conundrum here. Because here we've got a verb that if we translate it into good English, he made, we end up conveying something that the text may not be conveying. If we try to use the alternate term, do, we speak nonsense English. So what are we supposed to do? Not make. Uh, see the problem. See, this is the persistent problem that comes with translation. When you translate, you've got to make these kinds of choices. I always tell my students, your final goal as you learn Hebrew is that you'll get beyond knowing what a Hebrew word is because you have an English equivalent to attach to it. You'll understand what the Hebrew word is because you understand the Hebrew word. You know how it's used. You know what kind of uh, context it occurs in and what it communicates without translating it. You know, that's like when you learn any foreign language. Well, do I dream in it? You know, do I know how to use the language without translating it in my head? And, but because when we have to translate, we get ourselves into a mess. There are things that we just can't can't convey in a in a single English translation. Tricky stuff. Yes, sir? Day one about creating time. I agree. Friday, day one, and the earth was in it in some kind of form, but there was no time. No. Remember, house at home. In day one, God is is talking about time as functioning in the home, not about time as functioning in the house. The house already was set up and ready. Just like that builder built that house, okay? It's, it's all functioning, but it's not functioning as a home. The Bible's interested in how this cosmos began to function as our home. Remember my Center Square Chapel illustration? Okay, the walls of that barn stood before the stalls and all of that, but when did it begin to function as Center Square Chapel? That's a different story. So, timeless was, was there. All that stuff was there. Sun, moon, and stars were there. But they weren't functioning in the home for people. They were just part of a house that had been constructed with the holy mind. Just like that builder built that house expecting that somebody was going to move into it. So, were there people already there on the first day? It <laughs> cannot begin to function for people in God's image until there are people in God's image. Now, if someone wants to posit that could have there been hominids who did not have God's image, well, then that could have been part of the house story. Again, I'm not talking about that, and I haven't posited some theory about that. But the whole idea of this functioning is that it's functioning for people in God's image.
3: Yet God created all of this prior to putting
0: function to it. Functions for the home for God's people. In his image. Yes, sir? What you're saying creation
3: happened in two stages, in other words. It was a creating thing and then
0: it was a function. Well, it may have been many, many stages, but we can we can separate between a house story and a home story.
4: So those
0: two stages. Okay. Let me, yes, those two stages. Okay, now let me anticipate something for, for tomorrow that's my fault uh, to ease your sleep tonight. Okay? <laughs> oh. Think about, I mean, we've talked about the, the barn and the church. Okay, let's push that back into an ancient Near Eastern context, into a biblical context. So Solomon builds a structure, a structure that he is planning to have as a temple. Okay, he's got to do the house first. He's got to quarry the stone. He's got to transport it. Uh, shape it, put it in place, he's got to build the furniture, he's got to sew the priest's garments, he's got to do all the house stuff. And that's part of the first phase, the house story. Okay? When that is all done, the house is prepared. There's not a thing left to do. It's standing there, you can see it, you could say that it exists. But what exists? Does the temple exist? No. Because the temple talks about a function. And it is not functioning yet. That structure exists. It's ready to be a temple. The house is there. But nobody's home. Nobody's in it. Okay? Then... At some point, a second phase takes place where that becomes a home, God's home. And then the temple exists. The temple, since that is a functional category, does not exist just because the structure is there. Again, we go back to Dilbert, a dead body. It exists materially. But it doesn't exist as a person. Two categories. Yes, the house part has to precede the home part. Right? It's not ready to be served as a home until the house is ready. So the house part precedes the home part, but there are different phases. And you could tell the story about the origins of the house, the building of that structure that was going to be a temple or you could talk about the origins of the temple, God's place, and they're two different stories. Mm. Yes?
2: So so the house existed before Genesis
0: 1? If Genesis 1 is a home story, then it would presume that the house was already in place before the story began. Then
2: you would think that maybe Genesis 1 could focus only on people and, and created in God's image, because all of that was already there.
0: Right, but the interest of the passage is to tell you how it functions in the home, how it functions for the people. So it's not just saying that God puts people there, it's talking about how all this works for them. So they proclaim the functions. Here's how this home is set up, time, weather, food. And here's how the functionaries work. Here's where the switches are. Here's the thermostat. Here's, the, here's, here's how everything works for you. So this is the, the um, as the realtor shows you the, the home and how all of these things that the builder built into the house are now going to work for you as you inhabit the home. Yes, sir? So the Since emphasis, the emphasis is on functioning, does it make any difference in whether they days or literal twenty-four hour days? We will talk about that tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir.
3: So, I think I think that's the way I want to answer, ask the question. So I, I I get the functional piece of the story. Good. That's okay. Well. Great. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it, is there is there any place in the Old Testament that is concerned with material origin or 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 maybe by the way I'm saying it, I show how far outside I really am from the original culture of the text. But is there any place in the whole in the that is concerned with material
0: origin? There are a few scattered statements about the very basic material. God laid the foundations of the earth. That's a material statement. But it doesn't tell you how or when or what processes or what time or what the, and it, quickly, it moves quickly moves quickly than the functions. So it we we do have a couple statements like that, but very, very, very small. Yes, sir? Uh, can this is off of the function thing. Um, what I was thinking about verse two in the starting point. Um, and We skipped over the sphere and I was wondering if the the, uh, textual analysis lends that to be like wind with the earth and the waters or uh, like the comfort of having the sphere in verse 2 I didn't hear the question okay this has to do with uh, the spirit in verse 2 uh, he noticed that I skipped over that. <laughs> How does that fit in? Uh, I skip over because it really doesn't contribute to the overall questions that I'm dealing with. But it's an important part of the text, of course. Um, they, some people have suggested. And by the way, I've gone back and forth on this a couple times, just in my own opinions. Um, but uh, there are people who have said, uh, "Well, a mighty wind." Ruach. Ruach is a Hebrew word. They translate as spirit. And in Hebrew, it can also mean wind. So some people, instead of translating "spirit of God," translate a um, a, a god awful wind, you know, a, that kind of thing, um, a huge, mighty wind. And people notice that in some of the ancient Near Eastern texts, there's a there's a wind as part of the the initial setting. And so they suggest, well, wind is just another piece of the non-order that we're familiar with in the ancient world. And there was a a short time when I was kind of attracted to that that possibility. But the more I looked at it, the more I said, usage doesn't doesn't bear that out. Um, And so I ended up doing a pretty complete study of it. It's published in a book uh, that has a lot of articles about the spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. And I did Genesis 1, too. Uh, And I concluded that usage really doesn't allow it for us to translate a mighty wind there. it doesn't fit in the same way that wind does in the chaotic pictures in the ancient Near East. Uh, So I take it as spirit of God. Um, We have uh, the important parallel in Psalm 33, 6, where it has spirit and word as parallel. Remember, of course, it's the word of God throughout Genesis 1. The word of God is the active ingredient. And of course, in the ancient Near East, the word is the means by which functions are declared and proclaimed. So word becomes important that way. But the word could also reflect what the spirit is doing. The spirit is mentioned in verse 2 and then not mentioned again. But perhaps this word, as the word of God goes forth on each of these, it's the spirit that, that activates and carries that out. Now, in terms of uh, Christian theology, are we talking about this, the Holy Spirit here? Well, theologically we may be, but textually we're not. And what I mean by that is, again, I'm going back to my basic method. We have to read the text the way the Israelites read the text. Do the Israelites know anything about the Trinity? No, they don't. Does they, would the Trinity idea make any sense to an Israelite audience? No, it wouldn't. They don't have, you know, God was working very hard to say... There's one God, there's one God, there's one God. Let me tell you about the Trinity. No, it doesn't work that so, so that's simply not something that's revealed in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament uses spirit of the Lord or spirit of God, it's not presenting that to an Israelite audience as a person. It's presenting it as an extension of God's authority and power. And you can really see that um, clearly when you get to Ezekiel, and he keeps using the Spirit of the Lord in parallel to the arm of the Lord. The Lord stretched out His arm, and the Spirit of the Lord took me. You know, it's, it, he uses them in parallel sorts of ways. It says, "Okay, the Spirit of the Lord is the same as the arm of the Lord. It's an extension of His power and authority." Now, that is not contradictory to the Holy Spirit concept, but it's also not the same as the Holy Spirit concept. The fact that the New Testament goes back and on several occasions when the Old Testament uses the Spirit of the Lord, the New Testament interprets that as the Holy Spirit. That's fine. That's not a problem. Okay, but the Old Testament audience wouldn't have known that. Uh, We can take that on the authority of the New Testament author. That's great. I'm I'm good with that. But uh, in that sense, the Spirit of the Lord in Genesis 2 um, has to do with this potentiality that I mentioned with the Egyptian text. The potentiality the Spirit is there, waiting to be involved. And the word of the Lord is carried out by the Spirit who brings these things about. And again, Psalm 33, 6 is an important verse in there. Yes, sir? Some people might describe the thesis as sort of a prophetic revolution for theology. Um, it's unlike the you're suggesting it's more like an ancient discovery along the lines of archaeology. It was always there. This is how they saw it. it it seems pretty clear to play off of uh, Tim's suggestion that the New Testament has overtones of Hellenistic philosophy, yet. I get that. My question is, at what point in the loss of the story um, do you think that happened in the Jewish tradition? In other words, could you you give us reference, biblical or non-biblical, that this story that you're describing was alive and well, in the Jewish understanding of ancient origins, say for instance at the time of Isaiah or something like that. Oh, again, um, you know, I I have another presentation that I do that talks about creation through the Old Testament, and I go through all the passages, and I think that this concept of creation is evident everywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah forty to forty-nine talks about creation quite a bit, of course, the Psalms, Psalm one hundred four, and you can go through all those passages and. Um, you'll see the functional element all the way through Job 38, Job 36. Um, this, this is the main aspect. Uh, but, of course, we have no interpretation of Old Testament texts that are not already in the Hellenistic period. Our oldest interpretations outside the Bible are things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the intertestamental literature when Hellenism has already steamrolled the, the whole thing. And so that's what we see in those, those passages. And that's true in the rabbis. Rabbinic literature, um, it's already been steamrolled by Hellenism. Yes, sir? Um, one of the, we're,
1: we're kind of doing it in the church, in the, already believing in the Hebrew God, but for the people of Israel in their diverse cultural setting, you sort of have mentioned it, but how would you summarize monotheism, what else did they learn from this? What else, how else did this
0: give them identity? Well, remember that uh, the Israelites struggled with syncretism for almost their entire history. Uh, you know, until we get to the post-exilic period where they finally seem to, to get the idea, uh, they struggled with syncretism. And that means that they're uh, inclined to think about Yahweh as if he was one of the other gods, and inclined to think about other gods as part of the picture. The Bible, of course, in its teaching, is always trying to wean them away from that and transform their way of thinking so they can think about God properly the way He's revealing Himself rather than getting all tangled up in the, the standard beliefs of the ancient world. So, what we find in Genesis, of course, introduces and, and presents this, um, this monotheistic way of thinking. Now, some people have talked about Genesis 1 as polemic. I don't know if that's what you're thinking about at all. Um, you know, is Genesis 1 trying to argue against the Babylonians or the Egyptians? Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that it is explicitly doing so. Um, that is, uh, certainly any time that you tell the truth, you are arguing against falsehood. You know, Every time we tell the gospel to somebody, we're arguing against Islam. But we might not have Islam in mind at all, and we might not be intending to argue against Islam. Well, we're not trying to operate polemic or apologetic against Islam. We're just telling the gospel. Okay? In that sense, before the uh, account of Genesis 1 to tell the truth about the, the, the God, the single God, who is not in the world, but is outside the world and has brought order, he is the one who is bring order. It's his house, it's his place, you know, all of those things. Well, obviously that stands in contrast to what other peoples believed about their gods. But I don't think the Israelites really, I don't think that's the issue. The author is not trying to argue against it, because he doesn't mention those other beliefs. He just says, here's the truth. So I don't know if I answered your question or not. Well, it looks to me like we are out of time, is that... I have no idea. Yep. Yep. So uh, we'll press on (laughs)
4: tomorrow. And I believe you'll have plenty of time for questions tomorrow. Tomorrow, also. Yes. Yes. Sure. So. Tomorrow, 9 a.m., please, if you didn't get the email that I sent out earlier in the week, remember, there is a mini-marathon tomorrow, and it basically almost surrounds the church. So, um, go on to the Hoosier Mini Marathon website, look at the route. The best way to get here is going to be from the east, coming east on 3rd Street, south on high. I don't know how you get there, but that's the way to go. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have to cross the the uh, race route, they at much. least once, if not more than once, and that will definitely make you late. Uh, so at 9 o'clock, there's no one else that's going to be in this space tonight, so feel free to leave books, Bibles, pens, water, uh, garbage piece take have with you, Any anything else after absolutely fine. To me, oh, you took that slide down. The, the temple inauguration piece of Dr. Walton's. this is just my bias, it is the most interesting and thought-provoking of the whole presentation. So you're definitely going to want to be back tomorrow and hear that piece. And thank you, Dr. Walton. We'll see you tomorrow morning.